Philippians chapter 1. I have the privilege of leading us through our passage this evening, but before we dive into this remarkable passage, disclosing a remarkable perspective on some challenging circumstances, let me just offer up one more prayer for us, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we ask that your grace would abound as we turn our attention to your word. May your Holy Spirit open our hearts to receive what you want us to receive from it. Give us grace to respond appropriately to that which we should respond. Father, if there is truth for us to claim from this text, the the beauty that we are to behold in this passage, would you give us grace to do so this evening in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you step into this passage, you have a moment, of course, where Paul is writing this letter to a group of believers located in the city of Philippi. It's a church that he helped plant. It's a church that he loved dearly. And he's writing this letter, as you recall, from a prison cell, having suffered much uh, for the sake of the gospel, and, and yet his suffering and the struggles and the trials he's enduring has not dampened his joy in Jesus. It has not destroyed his love for the church. It has not affected his, his witness in any negative fashion. And so he writes these words, really emphasizing that and bringing that to bear on his readers, because The way Paul kind of structures this letter is quite common. Uh, He structures his letter after a common pattern of ancient letters written back in the day where you start with a greeting and then you offer some type of prayer and then you jump right into it. And usually you jump into what you want your readers to know with a phrase that was used quite often and it's found there in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, boom. And you would expect, after the Philippians heard of Paul's imprisonment and he's receiving this personal letter from them, you would expect Paul to finish that sentence, I want you to know, brothers, uh, with a description of his personal sufferings. You would expect, and we could understand, if Paul would want to take this opportunity to describe how cold his prison cell is. You would expect, and we would understand, if Paul wanted to take this time to talk about how tight his shackles are around his wrists and his legs. Maybe he could talk about how hungry he is or how he couldn't wait to get free. You would expect, and we could understand, Paul to move into a detailed description of his personal sufferings and his personal struggles in this prison cell. But you notice in verse 12 that that's not what Paul does. Paul turns his attention where he wants the Philippian readers to turn their attention. He turns his focus towards where he wants disciples of Jesus to be focused on in this life in light of two realities or two struggles that every disciple will endure at some point in time in their lives. The two themes, of course, one of which is found in verses 12 through 14. The other is found in verses 15 through 18. It's kind of how the passage breaks down. The first few verses there dealing with sufferings. And the second section, the other portion of this passage, deals with slights, when people uh, maybe go after you emotionally or verbally or uh, doing things that might harm you uh, emotionally or psychologically or whatever the case may be. And so you have suffering on one hand in verses 12 through 14, and then that suffering takes a particular form in verses 15 through 18, dealing with personal slights. And now the big idea that I'm going to kind of unpack over the course of these next few moments, the big idea of this passage may be summarized like this. It may be summarized that from Paul's perspective in light of the gospel, neither sufferings nor slights can snuff out our joy when we sink our joy in the gospel. When we sink our joy into the gospel, neither sufferings nor slights can snuff it out. This is quite clear from Paul's example when he says, I want you to know, brothers, and instead of launching in a detailed description of his sufferings, uh, wallowing in an understandable uh, 
somewhat of a pity party about his struggles and sufferings. Instead, he says, I want you to know, brothers, this is what I really want you to focus on, that what has happened to me, referring to his sufferings, his imprisonment, his soon, the trial that he will soon have, he said, all of this has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This was Paul's perspective on his sufferings in that moment. And he does not offer an earthly interpretation of his situation. He offers a heavenly interpretation of his situation. Two people can see the same thing and experience the same thing and yet interpret them completely different. And there's a sense in which we can look at our sufferings and interpret them from an earthly perspective, which will usually lead to the loss of joy and the loss of hope. Or we can look at our sufferings and we can interpret them from a heavenly perspective. We can see them through a gospel filter. And in so doing, we'll find our joy not dampening or deadening. We will find in a mysteriously miraculous way our joy actually deepening and increasing in in various ways. But in order to do that, you and I have to have an appropriate perspective on suffering and how it functions in the life of the follower of Jesus and how suffering functions in light of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus. And to do that, we have to dispel a few uh, misconceptions about suffering and the role that it plays in the life of the believer. Particularly, I want to identify three misconceptions about suffering in an effort to dispel them from our hearts and to dispel them from our minds so that when we do find ourselves suffering in this life, we don't go to one of these three conclusions on them, one of which is this. And and all of these misconceptions are present in churches today. Sometimes it is churches that teach these ideas, and it is guys like me who might communicate these ideas, and I don't want us to be uh, swept up in them because I think they are, I think they are lies. I don't think they're true. I think they betray the gospel. And if we do buy into them, we cannot have joy when we suffer. The first of one is this. The first one is, you and I can avoid suffer if we would just have enough faith. And this line of thinking suggests that if a person has enough faith, if they believe hard enough in Jesus, or if they believe hard enough in God, or if they believe hard enough in the promises of God, then they will not suffer because they have enough faith to dispel suffering from their lives. Now, you would think that that idea would be uh, easily rejected because what's the logic of it? The logic of it is if you are suffering in your life, you're at fault. You are to be blamed. Can you imagine bringing that logic and bringing that application to a mother who's just given birth to a stillborn baby? What are you going to say to the mother in that moment? Are you going to say, well, if you would have just had enough faith, this wouldn't have happened? Of course you're not going to say that because it's not true. It's not gospel. It's not graceful. So we'd want to dispel this erroneous idea that if we have enough faith, we can avoid suffering in this life. That is gospel-less. Who's going to say of Paul that he does not believe? Who's going to say of Paul that he doesn't have enough faith to overcome the sufferings in his lives and to get out of this prison cell? Who's going to tell Paul, Paul, if you could just get out of this situation, if you just believe hard enough, if you'd believe deep enough, if you would put your faith in faith and you could be set free? The problem with this line of thinking is that it encourages disciples to put their faith in faith and faith in faith is a terrible form of Christianity. We are not called by Jesus to put our faith in our faith. We're called by Jesus to put our faith in the grace of God. And there's a big difference between the two. You might say, well, didn't Jesus say something along the lines? Like if we had faith the size of, the must- of a mustard seed, we could move mountains? And I was, Yes, he said that. 
But I don't think he was saying that so that you and I would aspire to a mustard seed kind of faith. Mustard seed faith is not impressive. Mustard seed faith is not something to brag about. A mustard seed is a very small object. It's one of the tiniest seeds on the planet. What Jesus is getting after when you take that into consideration with everything else that he teaches in the Gospels and what is unpacked in the New Testament, he's saying that even, the fa- even your imperfect, minuscule faith, if you put it in the right place, or better yet, you put it in the right person, that's when mountains will move. That's when things will be changed. That's when you can experience a depth of discipleship that can compel you to, yes, even rejoice in and through the sufferings you may be enduring. So we don't put our faith in faith. We put our faith in the gospel of God's grace. That's where we're always looking. And so we want to dispel that misconception right off the bat. But then a second one is that sometimes it is, it is suggested that if you are suffering, you are suffering because somehow you've made God mad. God is mad at you. There's really no explanation for why you are struggling the way that you are and why you are suffering the way that you are. And And if that's your perspective, or if that's ever been suggested to you that you are suffering because God is mad at you, let me just encourage you to think about the gospel. Again, the gospel is our filter for all of this. If Jesus died for your sins, and if Jesus died in a way that satisfied God's wrath for our sins, if he did that, then it does not stand to reason that God would be punishing you or causing you to suffer because he's mad at you. God would not do that because he's already caused his son to suffer for you, right? He's already punished his son for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And when that went down, it caused the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. So any suffering we endure in this life, it cannot be tied to this idea that our Father in heaven is mad at us. Now, that doesn't mean that God might not use suffering to uh, do, produce some changes in our lives. It doesn't mean that suffering isn't a tool in his, in his toolbox to use when he's sanctifying us or when he's making us to be more like Jesus. This is why Paul would later in the book of Philippians, he would talk about his sufferings and how his sufferings are being used to make him more like Jesus. And so he would say bizarre things. This is why I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. Because God is using this bad stuff to produce good in me. God is using this bad stuff to wean me off of my love affair with this world so that I might put my hope, put my faith, put my trust in the Savior. But it's not a form of punishment. It's a form of refinement. It's a form of sanctification, so to speak. But then the third misconception that we want to dismiss, especially in light of Paul's experience in this text, is that there are some who would suggest that if you are suffering... Your suffering is not a part of God's plan for you. And sometimes we want to get a very narrow and a very human view of God that says, if I'm suffering, then that can't possibly be a part of God's plan for me. And and it seems to me that Paul's assessment of his situation in verse 12, it would fly in the face of that idea. This whole idea of him saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It seems to me that Paul's imprisonment was part of God's plan for Paul. It seems to me that in Acts chapter 9, Jesus, when he he saved Paul and called Paul to be a missionary to go and plant churches, he even told Paul that he would suffer. 
He said, when you go and you make much of me and you take the gospel into these unreached people groups on the planet, you're going to suffer in the process. He, it, it seemed to be a part of, Paul, of God's plan in his life. And so I think we're out of bounds if we just draw the blanket, conflu, con, the blanket conclusion every time suffering arises in our lives and we say something like, well, suffering's never a part of God's plan. And when we say that, we lose the gospel. Because if you say suffering is never a part of God's plan, then you can't think rightly about the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I were saved because suffering was a part of God's plan. You and I were saved and redeemed and rescued from our sins because God planned the execution of Jesus Christ. He planned his birth, he led his life, and he drove him to the crucifixion where he would die in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we don't want to draw the conclusion that our suffering is never a part of God's plan because if we do that, then the cross loses its power in our lives and we lose our anchor in a reality that will help us endure suffering with any form of hope or purpose or promise. I mean, if you consider the cross of Christ, you'll, you'll think how God brought salvation to us through the uniquely planned suffering of his son, but then you think about Paul's example and you think about countless numbers of examples of men and women who have suffered much en route to following Jesus and you think about how he brings salvation to other people through the common sufferings of his people. One of the ways that God gets his gospel going to all peoples on the planet is through those who are willing to suffer to get the gospel there. You think about a story like Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was one of five missionaries who were killed by a tribe of unreached people, uh, the Alca Indians in Ecuador, in the stride of bringing the gospel to them and making an, an, uh, an approach to them. They turned on Jim and his friends and speared them all to death. They all five died. When news broke of their martyrdom, of their death, it, covered, like, it was big news in our country, that life, so big that Life magazine actually put it on the front page and had pictures of their bodies on, uh, from that story in their magazine. But what's fascinating about that story is that their initial push into this unreached people group to bring the gospel to this people who had never heard the name of Jesus, these guys died in the process, but then later their wives went back. And their wives returned to the same people to explain why those guys showed up in the first place. And to convince them that they came to them because they wanted them to know that God loved them so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that their sins could be forgiven. Even the sin of murdering these five missionaries. It's a remarkable thing in the mysterious providence of God that he can actually utilize and in many in in many cases, plans suffering for salvific purposes. This is what Paul is identifying in verse 12 when he refers to his sufferings, but he says, my sufferings, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. And then he clarifies how that is. He says, my sufferings, or, my or the gospel is advancing through my sufferings in verse 13, so much so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. There are these soldiers that I'm seeing every day who are coming in to bring me my food, to look after me in the prison cell, and I'm, they don't see me wallowing in self-pity. They see me talking to guests who would visit me about Jesus, and then that would give me opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. And, and Paul says the whole imperial guard is catching wind 
uh, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. So he began, he got a front row seat with these imperial guards, these soldiers who were employed by the Caesar of Rome. He had a front row seat and a prime opportunity to tell them the story of Jesus, a story they would not have heard otherwise. His sufferings put him in a position to make much of Jesus in his prison cell. It's a remarkable dynamic, and we know that some of these members of the imperial God, it, guard, they, they came to faith in Jesus, because if you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, look at the end of the letter. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, you're going to see Paul end his letter with a greeting, and in this greeting, he identifies some of these guys, some of the people he was able to share the gospel with. He says in verse 21, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Those who are either a part of Caesar's family or those who may have been employed by Caesar, like the guards who were looking after him in prison. He's saying they're greeting you now. They're a part of the family. They've met Jesus. My suffering in this prison cell has led to their salvation. This is a perspective on suffering that doesn't say that we should avoid it by having lots of faith. It doesn't say that if we're suffering, it's because God is mad at us. It's, a, it's not a perspective that says if we're suffering, then that can't be a part of God's plan. No, this is a perspective on suffering that illustrates what Paul would write earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In that fascinating passage, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And when you read that famous verse and you read all things, there's no trick to it. There's no pony to it. It's all things means all things. Good things and bad things. God works them all together. He plans and purposes them for reasons that would bring great good to many men and women all over the world. And bring him great glory throughout the world. That's the reality I think that Paul is tapping into in Philippians chapter 1. And that's the humble perspective we should have on our sufferings. That no matter what situation we may find ourselves in. No matter how tasteless it may be. We want to have a perspective that says good can come from this. God can repurpose this. God can refashion this. He can work through this for his purposes in love for the world. It's not unlike what happens, just to kind of change the tone a little bit, uh, after hitting suffering and be kind of heavy. There, one of my guilty pleasures is um, the Food Network. Uh, I love the Food Network. And one of the things my daughter, six years old, we like to do at least once or twice a week is we like to sit down and turn on the Food Network. And usually when we do, we find that show called Chopped. And I'm sure you've heard of the show Chopped. Some people love it, some people hate it, but it's one of these cooking competition shows. And the premise of it is that you have these three chefs who come before this panel of judges and they are given mystery, mystery boxes. Uh, they're given a box for appetizers, a box for a, me a dinner, and a box for dessert. And they don't know what ingredients are in the box. They don't know what box they've been dealt. And so they open it up, and usually there's something in there that, that would stand pretty good on its own, a, a good ingredient, something that doesn't cause viewers to shrink back and shudder in fear, something like flank steak. You know, they open the box, they see flank steak, and they're like, I can work with that. That's kind of good in and of itself. That's a nice ingredient. Others might be jumbo shrimp, and they might see jumbo shrimp and say, that's a good ingredient. That's something I can work with. Or they may open it up and see a bunch of avocados in there and think, oh, avocados, that, that's easy. That's something I can work with. That's tasty. That's good. That's desirable. So usually there's some ingredients that people would like, and they kind of gravitate to, but the, 
But the show always throws curveballs. It always throws curveballs by including ingredients that nobody wants uh, to cook with. Ingredients that might leave people scratching their heads wondering, I don't know how this can be rearranged or repurposed to create a meal that is both edible and enjoyable. I don't know how that's going to go down. So an ingredient, for example, might be, well, one I saw in this uh, whole chicken in a can. Have you guys ever seen whole chicken in a can? It's terrible. I mean, it just looks terrible. I thought about bringing an image and projecting an image of whole chicken in a can, but I wasn't sure how strong your stomachs might be. So as I refrained, you're welcome. So whole chicken in a can is one of those ingredients. Another ingredient that has popped up on there is beef tongue. I don't know if you've ever worked with beef tongue. I have never worked with beef tongue, and I don't see myself working with beef tongue anytime soon. There are some cultures who love it, and it's great, but this Western isn't quite there yet. Another ingredient that pops out of that box sometimes is something called, and you might know what this is, I didn't. It's called Meramite Yeast Extract. Meramite Yeast Extract. I think it's popular in Australia or something along those lines, and I didn't, had no idea what it was, but it's basically this black concentrated goo. It doesn't look appetizing. And on the looks of the faces of the contestants, they, they didn't know what to do with it either. But then another ingredient uh, is one that I am familiar with during when I was traveling through Vietnam is this fruit known as durian. Anybody ever had durian before? Durian is otherwise known as stinky fruit. It's a fruit that smells so bad that it is actually illegal to have in some places in the world. It's a terrible smelling fruit. And sometimes they open up their box, they find durian. But the goal of this, con- this, goal of this contest is to take these ingredients, to put these ingredients, both good and bad, both desirable and undesirable, put them in the hands of a competent chef who can work something magical with it. Well, the perspective we hear Paul presenting on his sufferings in this passage is a perspective that says his God is capable and he is actually doing it. He's taking all the circumstances of his life, good and in this instance, bad, and he's working it together for the good of other people. He's creating something in Paul and through Paul that is edible and enjoyable, so to speak, something that is going to bring blessing to many people, and yes, it is coming through the sufferings he is enduring in this moment. His suffering is serving a good purpose for other people. And we would do well to consider how our sufferings might serve other people well and how it's possible for our sovereign and gracious God to take all things and to rearrange and to repurpose and to move them together in a way that would do something similar. It's one of the deepest realities of the gospel is that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose Especially when you consider the crucifixion of the Son of God, the most heinous act of evil ever committed in the world serves our redemption and our salvation. And that pattern is traced in the lives of all of his people from that point forward. In fact, it actually a pattern that traces in the lives of his people even before Jesus did that. You consider the story of Joseph, a man who was sold into slavery and mistreated and overlooked in many situations and circumstances remained faithful to his God and eventually found himself in a position to help uh, many people. And when he got to that point where he was able to serve and bring blessing to others, even those who originally sold him into slavery, he said, look, guys, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. He said, what you did was wrong, but my God is right. What you did was bad, but my God is good. 
That was his perspective. And as a result, God brought blessing through Joseph to people who did not deserve it. People who weren't worthy to receive it. This was his perspective. And so this is what Paul is getting after when he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. It is blazing a trail through unbelief in the Roman Empire. It is blazing a trail, carved, forging out new territory for the kingdom of God in the world. And it is happening through these imperial guards who are meeting Jesus. But then you look at verse 14. It's even happening by the encouragement that my suffering in prison is bringing to other people. I mean, bringing to other disciples. You look at verse 14. He says, And most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Other people are being encouraged by Paul's example so that they're now wanting to talk about Jesus. People who may have otherwise been too timid to mention Jesus' name or too fearful to mention Jesus' name, they, they hear of Paul's suffering and they hear of the faithfulness he is exercising there and they're saying, hey, I can do that. I'm not in prison. I can talk about Jesus. I can mention his name and I can speak the word or the gospel uh, boldly and without fear. So otherwise timid Christians are being strengthened and emboldened by the example Paul is setting for them. You know, one of the most applicable things you can do if you want to become a disciple who talks about Jesus more naturally, more boldly, more fearlessly There's not a real trick to it. It's not about learning the right sentences and clauses and questions. One of the things you can do is just take some time and read some missionary biographies. Read some stories of men and women who have served Jesus in far harder contexts than 21st century Seattle, Washington. People who have faithfully proclaimed the gospel at risk of their lives. Read some stories of men and women who suffered much but maintained joy in Jesus Read those stories and you will find yourself poking your chest out a little bit. In love, of course. But you will find yourself talking about Jesus a little more willingly. You will find yourself inspired to talk about Jesus a little more naturally. You will find yourself uh, emboldened by the work God has done through other people who suffered far more than being slandered on social media or being frowned out in the coffee shop that they frequent, you, you, you will find yourself in a position where you're willing to talk about Jesus and even wanting to talk about Jesus a little more naturally than you might do now. And so I would encourage you to read some biographies, read some stories of men and women who, like Paul, suffered much in order to bring the gospel to others. Read a book by Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, one of which is called Through the Gates of Splendor. It's a fascinating read of their story and their journey to bring the gospel to Ecuador. And as you read that, you will find, I believe, inspiration for your own faithfulness to Jesus. So Paul identifies this, so he's dealing with those types of sufferings in verses 12 through 14. But notice one of the things that he gets into in verses 15 through 18. So he moves from talking about suffering in prison to the personal slights he is enduring from some of the people who were inspired by his example. It's a strange dynamic that in verses 15 through 18, after saying uh, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord, notice he says in verse 14, most of them, but not all of them. Not every person is on board. Not every person is inspired. Not every person is seeing Paul as a good example to model. So a lot of them, but not all of them. And so he gets into why he says in verse 15 when he identifies why Some of those who are now proclaiming Christ and talking about Jesus, they are doing so with impure motivation. 
He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy or rivalry, but others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry or out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but they are thinking in some way, and I don't know how this fleshed out, but they were thinking in some way to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. In other words, there were some in the church who were inspired by his example to the point where they wanted to take over for Paul and the influence he had perhaps in the life of the church or in making much of Jesus. A guy by the name of Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase of the Bible in a book called The Message. Um, Many of you have probably heard of it, but it's a good book to read in parallel to what you're reading in the scriptures because it can help us understand some passages that, that we might not at first glance be able to process clearly. And so I want to share with you his Peterson, Eugene Peterson's summarization of verses 15 through 18. This is what he says. He says, it's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group is motivated by pure love, knowing that I am put here, that I am here defending the message, wanting to help. The others, now that I'm out of the picture, are merely greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad, they see me as their competition, and so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So how am I to respond? And here it is. I, I've decided that I really don't care about their motives. Whether mixed, bad, or indifferent, every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, so I cheer them on. Now that's, that's a man who's not full of himself. If that's what Paul is saying in these verses, that, that's one whose priorities are in the right place. That's one who's put his joy in, he's sunk his joy in the gospel, not in his circumstances or sufferings, not in his uh, the slights that people are showing at him. He sunk his joy in the gospel. But if you read that, you might, you might get to the, you might start asking the question, okay, if Paul doesn't care about their motivations, then how should we think about motivations? How should we think about motivation? Does motivations matter in a person's discipleship? Do motivations matter in ministry? And to that question, I would answer yes and no. The answer to the question, do motivations matter in the Christian life or in Christian ministry, the answer is yes and no. And to understand that, you have to consider what Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians. If you turn over to the right in your Bible, this passage will pop up on the screen. There's a passage where Paul talks about his motivation, why he does the things that he does. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through 6, he's actually talking about his ministry in Philippi. And he's affirming the pure motivation that he employed there. Listen to what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So for him, his motivation mattered, right? For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
So on one hand, Paul is saying, yes, motivations matter, but the motivation, motivation matters for us. Motivation matters for me, for ourselves. But what he's also getting after in Philippians chapter one is that motivations don't matter for others. In other words, we should not be surprised when other people who are sharing the sound gospel do so from an impure motivation. Motivation is relevant for me. It is relevant for us, but it's not relevant for others. Now, I don't know how that lands on you, but it seems to be what Paul is getting after in this text. He's saying, ultimately, ultimately, motivation is my concern. I want to be concerned with my motivation, my purity, but I'm not ultimately concerned with other people's motivation if they are proclaiming Christ. Now, Paul is not talking about people who are distorting the gospel. He's not talking about people who are missing the gospel. He's not talking about people who are changing the gospel. We know how Paul thinks about them. In Galatians chapter one, he says, if anyone comes proclaiming a gospel other than the one that I shared with you, let him be accursed. And he says some harsh things about that type of person or that type of communicator. Later in Philippians chapter three and four, he will refer to them as dogs. And so there is an instance, so he's not talking about people who are proclaiming or teaching a gospel different from the one that centers on Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. It's talking about something. He's talking about people who are communicating the same gospel, but from a different motivation. And he's saying, what matters to me isn't so much their motivation, even if their motivation is to hurt me. If they're proclaiming Christ, that's what I'm celebrating. And that's a that, that makes Paul the freest person in the Roman Empire. Do you realize how liberating it is to be unconcerned with the slights other people may be throwing at you? If Christ is being proclaimed, and if that's where your joy is, then you can endure any slight or any hiccup that people might throw in your direction. Paul is the freest person in the Roman Empire by adopting this perspective. Now, I was challenged by this reality several years ago when I was a part of a church led by a pastor who was highly charismatic, a pastor who was highly influential. He was one of these guys who could communicate with great charisma. He was one of these guys who, when he shared the gospel, people's hearts just seemed to open up and receive it and respond to it. I mean, I've been with him in camps and conferences well, where hundreds of people have professed faith in Jesus, and he was a remarkable communicator. And he planted a church that grew very quickly over a short amount of time. And many people loved him. Many people listened to him. He proclaimed the gospel clearly. He taught the gospel faithfully. But then after about 20 years of ministry, it came out that this guy, for about 15 of those years, this guy had a second family. He had a second family that he was caring for, a second family that he was, that he kind of had hidden from everybody else. And part of his traveling was, was a way for him to visit his other family and to mask this, these two lives that he was leading. And, and I remember when word broke and I learned that this was a guy that I had looked up to. This was a guy that I saw God use in some remarkable ways. And I'm thinking, God, do motives not matter? I mean, how could you use him when all of that was going on in his life all of that time? Do you not care about our motivations? And as I was, I was thinking about this guy's situation and the journey that he was on, I, 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 I'll just confess, my heart was envious of his influence. And so I began to get bitter 
towards his influencing. He has so much influence, but he had all this going on. So, so I felt myself envy, uh, envious and growing bitter, and I was angry and resentful, wondering, God, does holiness not matter? Does faithfulness not matter? And I remember walking out onto a basketball court uh, not far from where I was living, and I was shooting basketball, asking these thoughts and voicing my frustration to God. I was sorely disappointed by what was what came out, and as I was doing so, it was as though the Holy Spirit cross-checked me into the glass, just bumped me into the wall, and, and in so doing, he reminded me of what Paul writes in this passage. And as I was wrestling with motivation, and I was wrestling, God, how could you use somebody like that? He reminded me in that moment, he said, Andrew, be concerned about your own motivation. Motivation matters for you but it doesn't necessarily matter for others. It's irrelevant. His motivation is irrelevant to you. If he was proclaiming the same gospel, if that's where your joy is found, you can still find a resource to rejoice in. You can still find evidence of grace at work because the power of the gospel wasn't tied to that communicator's integrity. The power of the gospel was inherent within the gospel. This is why God can use people whose characters are crummy, but yet use them to do remarkable things, not because of them, but because of the gospel. So when Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, he's saying there is a power inherent in the gospel. And anytime the gospel is proclaimed, anytime the gospel is promoted, it will do a work. And in many cases, it does a work despite of the person who's communicating. Some of you perhaps haven't been sharing the gospel because you don't think you're qualified. You don't think your motives are pure enough. You don't think you're good enough. But don't let that necessarily keep you silent. Recognize that the power of the gospel is Inherent within the gospel, the gospel is sufficient to do work despite you. The gospel is sufficient to do work despite others. So we don't want to be surprised or caught off guard when we learn of influential pastors and church leaders who are making an impact to find skeletons in their closet. We shouldn't be surprised by that, and we shouldn't discredit the gospel because of that. What you find in those moments is God doing a work despite them. Here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is addressing a situation where God is doing a work despite their impure motivations of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. So it's a powerful dynamic that Paul is putting out here. He's saying we can still rejoice in the gospel because the power is always in the gospel. It's never in the person. So we want to celebrate that, rejoice in that, recognize that. I remember a few years ago, and, and so Paul, in this moment, he's thinking about all of these things, and he's not taken aback by these personal slights. His joy isn't being snuffed out by these guys' envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. His joy is in the advancement of the gospel. That's where it is found, and there it is indestructible. A few years ago, one of the things that we first did when we entered this community is we hosted what's called a party in the park, and we did so up at BFD Elementary School, the same place that this weekend's service opportunity will, will take place. And So we went up there, we reserved the park, and we set up inflatables and food, and we invited the community to come and participate. We just wanted to introduce ourselves to the community and get to know people and just have a fun time. There was no uh, gospel proclamation. There was no uh, worship music service or anything like that. We just wanted to be present, bless the community, get to know people, and so we set everything up, and we're having this party in the park, but there was one neighbor uh, who didn't like the fact that we were there. 
She didn't like the fact that a church had come into her words, her park. Uh, This was her park, and she did not like Christianity. She did not like church, and so she had all these assumptions about us, and she came out, and not long after I showed up, I I see this lady just berating one of our volunteers, just lighting into one of our uh, young, single, professional gals, and and she this. Young gal didn't quite know how to respond or do, so, so Wes ran over and kind of deflected her venom and kind of took it onto himself, and she started ripping into him, and, and then I went over and kind of stood by Wes, and eventually her wrath is being spilled on all of us, and it's a long conversation of just being berated, of being verbally uh, just talked too harshly. We'll put it that way. And I'm thinking there, we're sitting there having this conversation, and it takes a long time to just kind of diffuse her Eventually she calms down, but then when she gets ready to leave, it gets awkward because I have to tell her, I'm sorry, but in another month, we're going to be here again. And when I told her that, she got really upset. She goes, oh, well, we'll see about that. I'm going to call the mayor and we'll do that. And I said, okay, well, I hope you don't, but we're planning on being back in a month. Well, what she did is she went home and for the next month at different times, we don't know, she had to have given a lot of time to this because our sermons aren't necessarily short. And so she went through a litany of sermons that we had posted online. And she listened to several and she took out quotes and things that I had said and she put them all in a Word document and just put a list of things that I said, things that we believe as a church. And then she put it in this Word document, writing an introductory paragraph, naming me as the pastor of this church and talking about uh, how untrustworthy I am and how we should not, the community should not rally to this event and really just kind of didn't talk about me in a very pleasant way. And then the day of the event, when we showed up a month later, we, our volunteers were setting up and some of them found a stack of these Word documents attached to a lot of our signs and publicities around the neighborhood. And on it was written a little note saying, take one. And if you take it, you open up, the first thing you read is something that's not very kind about me and my motivations and all these types of things. And then she goes into all these statements that I had made in sermons in weeks past. So one of our volunteers just went by and collected a whole bunch of these stacks and brought them to me and they wanted to know what to do with them. So I'm sitting here, I'm reading through it and and eventually, uh, uh, as I was reading what she put in there about what we believe, okay, God created us. Yeah, that's true. We believe in sin, that sin messes life up. Yeah, that's true. We believe that people are going to be held accountable to God. Yeah, we we believe that too. Then they started, she started talking about Jesus and the absurdity of something like the incarnation and the resurrection and get to that portion in the document. Yeah, we believe that too. And And what she had laid out is the gospel. And so despite what she had said about me in the opening paragraph, everything else was gospel. So I looked at our volunteers and I said, Just, she worked really hard on this. Go put it back. <laughs> and so we went and reattached all of these notes to the sign saying, well, it doesn't really matter what she says about me. What matters is that the gospel's proclaimed. What I was going to rejoice in that moment wasn't the slights and the slander that I was receiving. What I was going to rejoice in the moment is that she had unwittingly outlined the gospel. And if anybody did take those, yeah, they may have read some unflattering things about me, but who cares? It's not about me. It's not about our reputation necessarily. What matters is the proclamation of the gospel going forth and being made much of. And so when it comes to our joy, how do you endure slights against you as you follow Jesus? Well, you endure slights by making sure your joy is attached and sunk into the gospel. And if the gospel is being heard, if it's being spoken, if it's being proclaimed and platformed, whatever, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. 
This is why Paul in this passage is able to write these words because he knows that neither suffering nor slights can squash or snuff out his joy because his joy is placed in the gospel and the advancement of it. This is why Paul says in verse 18, when he says, what then, that's probably my favorite line in the whole passage, what then could also mean, so what? He's saying, these guys have impure motives, they have envious of me, they have some kind of weird competition with me, so what, who cares? So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is proclaimed, that is what I am going to rejoice in. And that's what made Paul the freest man in the Roman Empire, even though he was sitting in a prison cell. And then when you and I sink our joy in the gospel, we become the freest people on the face of the planet. The freest people who are characterized by an indestructible joy. So let's sink our joy into these realities. Let's sink our joy into the gospel. Let me close by offering up this statement by D.A. Carson who kind of counsels us in light of this passage and in light of some of the things that we're hearing. He says this. D.A. Carson, a very solid New Testament scholar, would say Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel in the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison to the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel in in the very center of our aspirations. So he asks, what are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To see your grandchildren grow up? Find a job? None of these are inadmissible, of course. None of these are to be despised. But the question is whether these types of aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. When the gospel's not occupying our center aspiration as we journey through this world, we will lose our joy when we suffer and we will lose our joy when we are slighted. But if we put it in the center of our aspirations, we find the key to an indestructible joy. Our joy is put in something that cannot be diminished. So I hope and I pray that each and every one of you and each and every one of us in this church would would live constantly bringing the gospel into the center of our aspirations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this evening and I I want to pray that you would a grace would abound in, in the life and in the heart of any person in this room who's walked in here suffering. I pray that your presence would draw near to them and that you would comfort them in Christ and that you would bring encouragement to them in Christ, that you would assure them of your love for them, that you're with them and that you will see them through whatever situation or suffering they are enduring right now. God, would you, would you let that be? God, I pray for any person in this room who's walked in feeling slighted, feeling uh, mistreated or slandered. I pray, God, that your verdict over them would trump out any other voice that may be speaking about them right now. I pray that they would find their identity in Christ and that they would see themselves beloved, beloved by you in Jesus and that you, God, would, would encourage them and just kind of warm their heart with that reality. God, make us a people who sink our joy into the gospel so that suffering or slights, neither one of them would be able to snuff it out. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.